Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I've got Darcy with me per usual. How's it going, Darcy? Hello. How's it going? Oh, it's going good. Sorry. I think we like, spoke at the same time, so I canceled you out. Um, yeah, I'm doing well. I'm having a whiskey drink for the first time in a very long what time. What you got? Just a whiskey on the rocks, or is it an actual mm-hmm. mixed drink? Or Nope, just bourbon on the rocks. Sweet. Um, yeah. I've got a glass of wine somewhere around here. Cheers. Nice. Cheers. I got a job. Darcy Yay. got a job. <laughs> so we're yeah, celebrating. So Cheers. Uh, cheers yay um yeah so i was just kind of fooling around on one of those job sites and was looking for something remote that i could do so i could earn some money while i'm still in school because um, i'm kind of just be aware that you're clinking ice i'm clinking <laughs> i know but making a lot of we're cheersing so it's okay okay um oh i was just trying to find a way to make money instead of taking out loans continually being in school so Word. um i found this job that is hiring um it's a forensic biomechanics job and it's remote, and so I'll work on that while I finish my degree, and then I will move back to Southern California when I finish. I'm so excited. So um, we are taking off for vacay pretty soon, Yay. too. So um, I'm very excited about that. Um, and the weather has warmed up. Yeah, finally. Yeah, it's been in the 60s this week, and I'm Ooh. so excited I can't even stand it. Like to That's downright balmy yeah, for up there. like we're busting out the shorts, we're getting the flip-flops. <laughs> Everybody's so excited here to finally get out of the winter weather. So um, a lot of stuff going on at the house, um, namely, oh God, this is, yeah. this is traumatic. Last weekend, I'm cooking breakfast in the kitchen, and we had a guy from Roto-Rooter out here. Um, clearing out some of the drains because we were expecting I was going to have some friends come into town from Mm -hmm. Iowa or something like that um, to come hang out and just enjoy the river house and whatnot. It was going to be my first set of guests and I was very excited and we were getting the guest bathroom in the hall prepared and Mike has managed to fix everything and get the toilet working and the sinks working and all that, but the sink wasn't draining. So he's like, let me just get the Roto-Rooter guy in here and he can clear that drain out and get everything functioning back to normal and blah, blah, blah. So yeah, I'm in the kitchen cooking breakfast. It's about 10 o'clock in the morning. Is this going to be gross? Um, And I hear like a splashing noise and I'm like, what is that? And I start looking around to figure out what's happening. And I walk over into, we have this big refrigerator room with that big old fashioned yeah. refrigerator and water is like pouring out Ooh. of the light fixture down onto the floor from the ceiling. No. <laughs> it's just whoosh, like a flood of water coming from upstairs through the lighting fixture onto the floor down below. Um, water starts coming out and it was only in one part of the house, but it was coming down into the bathroom downstairs. It was coming into the refrigerator room. It was coming into the hallway, like just all through the walls and the ceiling. And oh my gosh. Yeah. So immediately we turned the water off cause there was just, and we had just gotten all the plaster redone. So now it's like, it was mush. Oh yeah. So was it because of something the Roto Rooter guy was doing? So essentially, I think what happened, and this is what Mike thinks as well, that the Roto Rooter guy got that he was going in there at it pretty hard with like this long metal oh. thing, and I, we think he broke through one of the pipes that was maybe a little bit weaker. 
Because there are some pipes in this house have been here for like 100 years. Yeah. Um, And he just was a little bit too rough and broke through one. And... Oh, my gosh. Um, so my, I think Mike found the pipe. We had to tear up all the brand-new flooring that he put in oh. the laundry room that he took. They took him, like, a week to put in. Oh. Um, and so we have had people out here, like, looking, giving us estimates on how to redo the flooring and a couple of other little things that are God. necessary to make repairs on that. But it was, like, those, those are not things that you want to hear yeah. In an old house. Like, you don't want to hear splashing water. You don't want to hear yeah. popping. Especially you don't want to hear breaking. a light fixture. And I came down the next morning. We thought we had gotten everything. And then down into the, the um, we have, like, a little den room in the back. Like, water mm-hmm. was coming down from the doorway the next day. Jesus. So, it really took a long time for all of it to drain. We think it's kind of dried up now. But we're going to have to get the pipes repaired and fixed. And then the floors redone. So it's well. Insurance uh, cover that, or are you, are you like screwed? insurance covers the pipes, but not the redoing of the floors. Oh. So it's weird how they they cover it. Yeah. Um, but in any case, we I didn't really like the floor that was in there anyway. So I'm kind of like, yay, we get to replace <laughs> it. Um, but still, it's going to be a lot more work. And yeah. we had to cancel the guests that were supposed to come because the whole hallway is torn up right now. Oh, my gosh. What a so, nightmare. Not fun. Um, and then I think it's just stuff that you experience with old houses as it is. Sure. And it is what it is. You just got to deal with it. Oh, man. That but sucks. I'm sorry. Splash, splashing water. Yeah. <laughs> so we put that's... buckets everywhere. And, no, thank you. Yeah, so not fun times at the crumbling old house this week. But mm. the, on the positive note, like I went upstairs and checked out the attic again to do some pictures and stuff for the Instagram account and found a bunch of old furniture up there, which is really cool because we are going to kit out the carriage house and do Airbnb probably. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of furniture I can use in the carriage house. Like there's oh, nice. a, a really pretty coffee table, wooden coffee table. There's a big, huge, long side table. There's a couple of beds. There's a dresser. There's a whole bunch of stuff Whoa. up there. And like some massive boxes of old tiles from when they first did the bathrooms. So you have like extra tile? Yeah. That's awesome. But it's like 100 years old. So it's like you look at it and it's really kind of like... It's it's wild. It it's really neat. Wow. I took a bunch of pictures of it and posted it on Instagram. Oh, and nice! People I'll are just up. like super excited about it. I got a lot of comments and stuff, and people were very like, "Oh my gosh, this is so neat!" Yeah. But um, and it's a massive space up there. It's probably three thousand square feet just in, in the, the attic? attic. Just in how the are attic you going to get all that stuff down? That part alone, I don't know. We're going to have to hire somebody. There's like an old couch. There's like, there's a ton of furniture up there. We don't really need to get anything except maybe mattresses right? for the carriage house and, you know, towels and the stuff that you would get in an Airbnb. Yeah. But I mean, that was my plan is to do an Airbnb as opposed to renting it out. Cause I don't really want a permanent resident. Like long term. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to be able to have it clear when I have friends and family come so that they have a place to stay. Mm-hmm. Not that the house isn't big enough. I mean, we've got like seven bedrooms, but, <laughs> um, it, you know, in the event yeah. that we want to have somebody come over and stay and they want a little bit more privacy, we have that space available, yeah. which is real cool. That's cool. Yeah. Very exciting. Um, and then I get to pick out all this stuff. So it's like, you know, it's neat to pick out furniture yeah. and artwork and little 
cool things for that. So yeah. um, very exciting. But my my guests have been put off until April. Oh, so. man, that's a bummer. I know. I was excited because I was like, we haven't had anybody over because of COVID and everything. Yeah. But um, and then as well, I got a text today from somebody from work. I haven't played volleyball since COVID started. Mm-hmm. And then I moved here and I, I haven't known anybody. But we had this big thing at work where they told us to say one unique. They introduced everybody new and they told us to say one unique thing about ourselves. And I told them that I played volleyball. And mm-hmm. this girl sought me out via email and was like, hey, we're, the league is starting back up again. Do you want to play? And I was like, uh, I guess, like, what kind of level of play is it? And she's like, well, we play intermediate. There's competitive, intermediate, and, like, recreational. And I was like, Mm -hmm. well, do you know anybody that plays in the competitive league? Because I think I would rather play competitive. Because, and from what I understand, the intermediate league is okay, but it's Mm -hmm. like Bobby. Like, the intermediate league was like... our, Our girls' league was technically intermediate, but, like, that was high level ball. Right, but that wasn't. I get the sense that it's like, you know, underhand serving and that kind of thing. And so I was like, well, you know, I'd rather play in the competitive league because those are most of the girls that played in college. And Mm -hmm. I think I would feel more comfortable with that. And she's like, well, I know a couple of people. Let me give you their number. And and if they need somebody, they'll text you back. Well, I immediately got a text. And the girl was super cool. And she was like, yeah, my what position do you play? And I was like, I'm an outside hitter. And I usually play opposite the setter. And she's like, oh, my gosh. Our person just left last year and moved out of town. Do you want to play on our team? Like, we've won the championship, like, three years in a row, and we play in tournaments, and we have stuff with four-on-four and six-on-six, and do you want to play? That's awesome. And I was just, like, so excited. I can't even stand any of it. And she seems like a really neat person. She's like, I'm going to take you out for beers as soon as you get back. I'll introduce you to all my people. And it's just – it's a really – because I'm kind of introverted as a person mm-hmm. normally, like in real life, not yeah. when I'm doing podcasting, mm-hmm. um, it's hard for me to meet people and I feel kind of shy and withdrawn and stuff like that. And people kind of, I think, mistake that as just being snobby or whatever, but I sometimes feel kind of awkward. Yeah. And when you have something like volleyball to like be that intermediary, yeah. it, it's a lot easier to like make friends and meet people. And that's how I met people in San Diego was yeah, through volleyball. Too. Like all my friends I met through volleyball because mm-hmm. it's something you could connect with. Yeah. And so I was so excited to finally hear that the league is starting up and these people want to connect over volleyball. And so I'm, I couldn't be more excited. That's awesome. Yeah. All of my like closest friends and, and most long-term friends I've met through volleyball. Like, mm-hmm. when I first moved to San Diego, I found that league, but again, I saw it was intermediate, and I'm like, oh, I don't want to play intermediate ball, but yeah. then there was no other, like, women's only league, so I just yeah. took a shot and joined, well, luckily, and it was that like, one was, that yeah, one was it was like high-level ball, and that's how I met, like, all my friends in Southern California, I mean, that's where you yeah. and I met, it was, yeah, yeah. So, it's a great way to, like, so I would highly encourage you, if you're, like, not meeting friends or you want to meet more friends, like, sign up for a sports league, mm-hmm. if you have one Even in if it's, community. like, kickball. Yeah, kickball or softball or yeah. soccer or whatever. Like, it's such a great way to meet people. It really and to is. Connect with them and and get exercise at the same time because mm-hmm. we all know we've gained that quarantine fifteen. Right. And we need to get rid of that. So, um, it's an awesome, awesome thing. So I'm super excited about that starting up again. As soon as I get back from my Florida trip, I am calling them and I'm getting myself. Oh, that's involved. awesome! I can't wait to hear about it. I wish I could still play. Ever since I had that knee surgery. Like I'm trying to, I'm trying to I'm drop so some weight. I'm so bummed for you. Like I, I can't even like describe to you how bummed I would be if I had to deal with that. Like I just can't it's imagine devastating. not being able to play anymore. I'm trying to drop some weight to see if that will help, but 
I don't know. Like it's not just, even it's, with like a brace, like a hardcore brace. No, because of the, the nature of my injury. I tore my articular cartilage on my femur. Um, and it's just, it's one of those really weird wonky injuries and wonky surgeries that like, if I could go back, I probably wouldn't have had the surgery because it was probably like 50, 50 of whether or not it would heal on its own with or without the surgery. Right. And I think the surgery probably ended up making it not worse because it healed, but now like I can't like if if I I can I can play like forty five minutes, but then I won't be able to walk for the next two weeks. So oh, like that's no. kind of yeah. yeah. So and honestly, if there was like quality level ball around me, I would risk yeah. it. I would like go play for forty five minutes and then be like, I'll see you guys in two weeks. No, <laughs> but there's not. <laughs> I <laughs> but I live on the third floor of my apartment, so like that doesn't make sense. And like I have yeah. to describe to you people that Darcy was like literally falling apart, like shoulder <laughs> hanging off, and her knee is like whacked out, and she's out on the court playing, and she's taped herself up to a machine to document. Yeah, was research. <laughs> it was, it was so research. Crazy. I wanted to see because I was convinced, and I'm still not entirely unconvinced but I I was convinced that I like I, at some point I was going to tear my ACL I just knew it was going to happen and so I put on some like accelerometers to collect data on my knees and I was like I'll be the first one to get live data of what it looks like to tear your ACL so <laughs> and I didn't crazy. tear my ACL and I did I had moved by the time I actually did mess up my knee so I didn't have the the equipment to measure which would have been awesome but if you're going to get bonkers. hurt, why not be able to look at the data? <laughs> Do it for science. <laughs> Do it for science. I mean, people. it was Do it was a long. given at some point anyway, so might as well just get some data for it. That was so bonkers. But I miss those days so much. Like, mm-hmm. Darcy and I sitting next to the volleyball court, like, buying um, pina coladas from Jamba Juice and, yeah. like, getting a bottle of rum from yeah. the drugstore <laughs> and zhuzhing up our drinks as uh-huh. we're sitting there watching the games. Like, I miss that so much. I know. So and I had, I had a pina colada in your honor the other day. It was delicious. Yay. I love a pina colada, man. <laughs> I love them too. But there are just so many calories that I avoid them usually. I know, but, but it's so good. They're, they're the most delicious drinks. So I can't good. even handle it. They're so good. But anyway, um, in honor of Women's History Month, Darcy and I have decided, um, in addition to our wonderful women's chatting, yeah, <laughs> we're already doing on top of uh, everything else. Yeah, that we are going to talk about and celebrate some of the women who have gone down in history as amazing, right? Yeah. Um, and so I'm gonna. Um, we're starting out with mine, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm actually gonna talk about. Ava Perone. Okay. I'm um, Evita. Yeah. And whenever I hear that name, I always think of that song. Madonna. Don't cry, don't cry for me, yeah. Argentina. Um, that's a real song, though. That wasn't just mm-hmm. a Madonna thing that she made up. So um, this is a really interesting story. And I realize it's not crime in a traditional sense. And she wasn't murdered. So mm-hmm. I, like, I don't want to like, give people the impression that this is like a true crime story per se. But there was a lot of different stuff that went on during her lifetime that was just super fascinating. And she was such an interesting woman that I feel like it's really important to kind of highlight some of the things that she did um, that made her into the person she was and why she was so admired and respected in Mm -hmm. South America and way beyond that as well. Um, Maria Eva Duarte was said to have been born May 7th, 1919 in Hunan, Argentina. So I say she was said to have been born because there's kind of some different 
people that say different things and her birth certificate conveniently disappeared in later years. So she kind of had one made up. There's kind of some more reasoning behind that that I'm going to get into in just a second, but it's generally said that she was born May 7th, 1919. Okay. She's an Argentinian lady. Um, However, she was said to have created a false birth certificate when she got married because the original was lost Um, And then it was also widely speculated that she shaved a few years off her birth certificate when this is done, which who wouldn't do that? I totally would. It was really Um, common too back then that women did that. Um, And I think that having a birth certificate as readily available as we have it now wasn't really a thing either. So particularly when you've got somebody that's growing up in a very poor area of Mm -hmm. Argentina, like this, she's living in the country, very poor neighborhoods. I don't think that they were able to keep very good track of those, mm-hmm. some of those things anyway. But she grew up in the Buenos Aires um, province. And her dad, Juan Duarte, was a French um, Basque. And her mother, Juana, so it seems like there's a lot of Juans and Juanas. <laughs> um, but her mother was a Spanish Basque. Um, and both families were descended from immigrants to Argentina. Uh, to Argentina. Um, Now, Basque, for those of you who don't know, or Basque country, is on the border of France and Spain, and it's kind of that Western Pyrenees, and it straddles the edges of both countries on the coast of the Bay of Biscay. Oh, okay. I was going to ask what that was. Yeah. There are seven historical provenances that that are included in the Basque country, and the area is a mix of French and Spanish languages and culture, with neither being totally dominant as a whole. Um, and then the area has historically encountered a lot of unrest and fighting instability that's resulted in many of the Basque people leaving the area in search of greater stability. So back to Ava's story. Juan Duarte, her father, was a wealthy rancher um, from a nearby area, but the problem was he already had a wife and kids in the area that he was from. Mm. That is um, indeed a problem. Really interesting. Um, And I guess this was not uncommon in a lot of countries in South America at the time to have two families, maybe three, depending on the prosperity of the person. Mm. Um, And the problem was here that Ava was just a baby and his dad, her dad decided that he was going to return to his first family and not be a part of her life anymore. So he was going to go. I think he had kind of transitioned back and forth from both families or been with the first family for a while and then gone to live with them for a while, but he decided to go back to his first family permanently. And this left Juana Ibargren in poverty. That was mm-hmm. her mom. Um, and she didn't obviously have the Duarte last name either. And mm-hmm. they were forced to move into one of the poorest areas to survive. Now, this is interesting story, part of the story as well, because I think at some point there's debate as to whether Duarte um, allowed documentation to be created where he would claim his children so that they would not be considered illegitimate because back then that was a big thing. Mm-hmm. Like if you're an illegitimate child, you deal with a lot of discrimination and a lot of people that just do not like you, don't want to have you as part of society because they think that you're bad because you're yeah. illegitimate. And that's something that Ava really dealt with as a significant factor in her life. Like she felt like she was a second class citizen. She was stigmatized and, um, and are they Catholic? Do you know? Yes. So that's another, that part of the world is also very Catholic. So that's a huge thing as well. Um, so they also believe that the disappearance of Ava's birth certificate was part of that 
kind of erasing the stigma of being a bastard child. If oh, she doesn't have okay. the birth certificate, then there's no stigma because they don't know who, you know what I mean? Yep. So I think that that was a tool that could have been used for that. But um, her father died shortly thereafter, and Ava's family tried to go to the funeral, and they were allowed to enter to pay their respects, but were booted right after that. Surprise, surprise. Oh, wow, I, okay. I don't know if the first family knew about them all along or she found out about it after her husband died, but she was not happy about this mm-hmm. second family, and having them pop up at the funeral was very unpleasant for her. Um, as the years passed, the family... And I think she had at least two sisters and one brother. It doesn't specifically say how many or what their names were, but there were multiple children as part of this family, and they all lived in a single-room apartment in the Buenos Aires, excuse me, in Argentina, in very, very poor area of Hunin. And Julia and her daughters took jobs as cooks, and Ava's older brother eventually got a decent job, which allowed him to give them more money, and they moved into a bigger house, which they made into a boarding house. Okay. Okay. So during this more stable period, Ava starts becoming interested in acting and singing. And she's participating in plays and concerts at school. And she especially loves going to the movies. And she has aspirations of becoming an actress. And I don't think that that was uncommon either. Mm -hmm. And she was a very pretty young girl. So I think that it was something that perhaps came naturally to her. Um, But by the age of 15, she determined she was going to make her dreams come true. And she runs away from home with a young musician to Buenos Aires, which is like the capital Mm -hmm. of Argentina. And it's like this big, huge city. And it's like the Paris of South America. Yeah. So there's a lot going on. There's culture, there's theater, there's more jobs. There's also a depression going on. So there's like this really sharp contrast between the poor that have kind of merged into the city to get help and to Mm -hmm. beg for food and to get special assistance. And then you've got this influx of people seeking culture and restaurants and shops and things like that. So it must've been a very interesting time to be there. Mm -hmm. Um, But shortly after Ava gets to Buenos Aires, she ends this relationship with this musician and decides to pursue her own career aspirations without him. There's some um, people that say that she had gone to Buenos Aires with her mother and there's kind of debate back and forth as to how she actually got there, but that's where she ended up. Okay. And it was also during this time period that she began dyeing her hair blonde. So she had naturally black hair, and this blonde hair kind of became her trademark um, throughout her later life. And she starts getting jobs on the stage and in radio and in films very quickly. She's an attractive young girl. She obviously has some talent. So like I mentioned earlier, this was a really exciting place to be. And um, it's a center for culture and restaurants and theaters and shops and huge crowds of people. And Ava doesn't have any formal education or connections in the city, but she's, and the city is already overcrowded with thousands of migrants due to the depression, but this was truly a testament Mm -hmm. to her talent and determination that she was able to get there and put herself in a position where she could actually get jobs and become successful as an actress. And she, yeah. And this is like the early 30s. Right during the middle of the depression. And she's got this blonde hair, these lovely fleet, these lovely features and she's acting and doing radio stuff and into the late 30s early 40s and she's working with theater companies and she gets contracts for radio roles as well she does a little bit of film work but these roles aren't much are are much less successful for her she does seems to Mm -hmm. find her niche sort of in the radio 
Um, and little by little, she's okay. becoming famous, and she's able to move into a prosperous area by the early 1940s. So she's really worked hard to get herself where she is, and she dips her toe into radio politics at that point. She found she founds this Argentine radio syndicate, the ARA, where it's organizing these radio performers, and then comes January 15, 1944. And during this year, a massive earthquake centered in San Juan, Argentina, kills more than 10,000 people and devastates the region. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was horrific. And I think also during this time in some of the more poor areas, like the buildings were more like uh, more cheaply made, a lot of mud type buildings. The architecture and the foundational type things were not strong steel and cement Mm -hmm. like they are now. And so it created widespread devastation in some of the poorer areas. Um, And at the time, Juan Perón was the Secretary of Labor, and he established a fundraiser to raise money for the earthquake victims. In conjunction with these efforts, he organized an artistic festival. So you can kind of see where this is going. So this, this festival that he's got going on, he invites the radio and film actors of the era that are big in Argentina, and at the end of a week-long fundraising effort, all of the participants would come meet at this big, huge party to be held at the Luna Park Stadium in Buenos Aires. So he's like, okay. we're going to go out this hard. We're going to have all these fundraising efforts going on simultaneously, and then at the end of the week, once we've gained all this money, we're going to have a big party to celebrate. So during this party, this celebration... Eva meets or Eva meets uh, Colonel Juan that night for the first time, and this is January twenty second, nineteen forty four, and it's said that she was so enchanted by him that she immediately became his mistress. Like, done, hmm. done. I'm there. Um, and Colonel Juan Perón is single and ready to mingle after his first wife had died of cancer in nineteen thirty eight, and it looks like he was equally as enchanted with Eva Duarte. And who wouldn't be? She was gorgeous, bubbly, vivacious, seemed, you know, like a very charming person to be around. Mm -hmm. With no interest or real participation in politics, Ava decides just to to soak it all up like a sponge because she's suddenly thrown into this world of Juan Perón's where he's involved in politics, he's the Secretary of Labor, he's heavily into government activities, he's got aspirations for higher... Um, political office and so she's suddenly thrown into this and she's Mm -hmm. just like this young I guess she was like 24 and she's thrown into this and she's just been an actress her whole life and now she's like got all this political stuff going on around her and I think she was very intelligent about it and just decided to listen and to soak it up which is really Mm -hmm. interesting um Juan later claimed that he selected her on purpose because he could see she would be a perfect pupil and he was determined to use her in politics as his second in command. So oh, there's kind of some debate in not that area. A great way to talk about your wife. Yeah. Well, and <laughs> evidently he was 48 and she was 24. So there's a little bit of an age difference between the two of mm-hmm. them as well. So Eva Duarte, as you can probably imagine, was like this gorgeous young woman always hanging around his inner circle. And I think that there was a lot of people that didn't trust her, but I think that. Juan was kind of pushing it on everyone. Like, mm-hmm. this is, she's going to be part of this. You're going to accept it because I'm telling you to. Mm-hmm. So at the same time, coincidentally, around mid-1944, the broadcast performers organized a union. 
And this all kind of fell together in a very convenient sort of a way, but Ava was elected the president of this broadcasters union. So in order to be broadcast performers in Argentina, you had to be part of this union. And here it is, and she's the president. And many people say this was no coincidence that Juan pushed everything along very firmly, and those involved suggested that Ava be a president to appease him and sort of gain favor uh, with him. Okay. But she also started a program, a radio program called Towards a Better Future, which was sort of a soap opera glorifying Juan Perón and his achievements, which sounds really weird. Yeah. Um, and sometimes there were even, they even played his speeches. Like, it's very so, odd. So, like, did she come up with that idea on her own? I or is this, like, strategery? I think so. But yeah. she's, like, during these programs, she's, like, breaking it all down. Like, she's just, like, this regular woman who believes in the superhero qualities of Juan Perón. Oh, so she's, like, a fangirl. Like, portraying herself yeah, as a fangirl. Well, it's, I think it's all very carefully crafted. Yeah. I don't think there's anything coincidental about this. I think that she was part of this media machine. Like propaganda. It was created, yeah, yeah. Created by him to pump himself up and to make him popular with the masses. And he determined she was going to be a good person to help him do mm. this. She's charming. She's beautiful. She's into the radio. She's popular, etc. So then, um, not long after that, Perón's political star is rising quickly and the current president, Pedro Pablo Ramirez, is getting freaked out by Perón's power. Uh-oh. So... Perón was a huge proponent of unions, which were gaining power and control very quickly in Argentina. And he was also sort of gathering the poor and getting them behind him. Mm -hmm. And I think this freaked a lot of people out because up until that point, you've got this sort of aristocracy that's controlling the politics, that's controlling society. And they have all the money, they Mm -hmm. have all the power. And then all of a sudden, when you've got these unions with people that don't have education and class and society behind them, it can be a really scary thing for people in power. Well, and And it's also gathering these people. Yeah, it's also that time where socialism and communism are sweeping across the world. I mean, absolutely. And he is pretty much advocating on behalf of that. And in a, in a kind of a socialist way mm-hmm. or a fascist way. And the people in power were really scared of him. So Ramirez, the current president, resigns and a friend of Juan's becomes the president. And Juan gets the labor minister position, making him the most powerful man in Argentinian government. Ooh. So he's got the power play going on. Um, but this doesn't go unnoticed, and a bunch of Juan's opponents arrest him October 9th, 1945, because they think he will use unions to grab power. Okay. And to, to create sort of a dictatorship. And this results in massive crowds gathering to demand Perón's release. This event took on kind of mythical qualities at the time, probably pushed by Perón's own narrative after he mm-hmm. stood on a balcony and addressed crowds calling for his release. So... They get all these people to protest in the streets and to build these massive crowds behind him. And it just looks like he's got a, a political machine mm-hmm. behind him. And it is moving forward with the force of a train just very, very powerfully. So Perón then wins the election in 1946 and becomes president. And all the while, his PR people are building up the story surrounding this demonstration for his release. And they start letting it circulate that Ava was going from door to door telling people to take to the streets in protest, which didn't really happen. Like, he's creating this HR machine, right? This PR machine. And it's widely accepted by now 
Uh, but, excuse me, it's widely accepted by historians that Ava didn't really have anything to do with organizing the crowds that day, that the unions kind of did most mm-hmm. of it. But the day after his release, October 1945, Juan and Ava get married. So he's got this moving on kind of a schedule that seems very carefully yeah. timed, right? And he's taking advantage of media, and he's taking advantage of political events, and he's taking advantage of certain things within the society that are falling into place easily for him so that he can control things in a certain way. And Ava, in the meantime, campaigned from her radio show and outside of it for her hubby in his bid for presidency, and he ended up winning by a landslide. And like I said, that was in 1946, mm-hmm. right? He was released October 1945, and then he was elected president in 1946. Okay. So during that time, there's a huge push to reach the poor. And I kind of talked about that a little bit earlier. The poor people of that country comprised a massive portion of the population, and Perón's party came to power on the backs of these people, as well as with union support. So he's really utilizing a different kind of part of society than presidents had normally utilized to gain power. Mm -hmm. Like typically you're going to go for the power players that have the money and the power already and get them to support you in order to get yourself there. But he did it on the backs of the masses, which was very different. Okay. By 1947, Ava is fully into her new role as the president's wife. And she takes a European tour, which is called the rainbow tour of Europe. And I think it kind of means something a little bit different than what a rainbow would typically mean today. But the whole thing kind of started when Argentina came out of wartime quarantine, right? So this is right after like World War II, Uh right? And Juan Perón had actually gotten an invitation from Spain and Portugal. And these were the last remaining authoritarian leaders. Mm -hmm. And I think Perón didn't want to mess up his tenuous kind of ties that were being rebuilt with the U.S. and the United Nations, So he determined that instead of accepting these invitations and going to meet with these world leaders, I'm going to send Ava to do it. Oh, gotcha. That way I can still play the political game, but yet I'm not going to lose face with the U.S. or with the United Nations, and they're still going to... I'm going to win both ways. Right. But he's also secretly letting all the Nazis flee to Argentina. Pretty much. (laughs) So um, they determined that Ava could go instead, and this was considered a non-political goodwill tour, quote-unquote. So that he could play this game without getting himself into trouble. And then so Ava takes the tours of Spain and passes money out to the poor children. And she receives the Order of Isabella the Catholic, which is the highest award given by the Spanish government. She then goes to Rome and France and Switzerland, but she skips England because the king wouldn't meet with her. So there's kind of some bad blood there. And she was like, forget you then. I'm not going to England. But um, in the meantime, there's this huge group of people that speculate that she was sent to Switzerland, ultimately, that it was all kind of a play to get her to deposit a bunch of money in Swiss bank accounts. Oh. And kind of pull the money out in, and as a sign of corruption. Whoa. Okay. So Did not see that there, coming. There, there's that side of the speculation that she's funneling money out of the country into Switzerland to, as, as part of a corrupt Whoa. All uh, right. political party. Okay. In the meantime, Time Magazine does a story on her, and this is the only time in the magazine's history that the wife of a South American leader ever appeared on its cover alone. Hmm. This was in 1947. But the magazine also mentioned that she was born illegitimate, and this resulted in Time Magazine being banned for several months. 
as retaliation mm. after the article came out. But then Ava appeared again with Juan Perón in 1951, so she couldn't have been too upset with the magazine. Well, right? it was probably like Juan banning them, banning the magazine. Yeah, yeah. well, I think she was had part of it too because she never liked to acknowledge the illegitimate right. part, and she went to a lot of trouble to prevent people from knowing that. Right. So for them to call her out like that was probably painful for her. Yeah. Because it was something that was embarrassing to her. Um, and the European tour was a huge changing point for Ava. And her hair, her clothes, and her personality became more subdued after that trip. And a more lot subdued? of people believed, yes. Okay. A lot of people believe that this was an attempt to kind of cultivate her political persona. Oh, okay. So, like, her outfits became less brash. They became less colorful, more subdued, more like suits. Her mm-hmm. hair became less blonde, a little bit darker. Still blonde, but a little bit darker. And they were saying that she was kind of trying to create this kind of more conservative image that would be more palatable gotcha. for the masses. And let's talk about some of Ava's contributions to the country. So there's this organization at the time that she, her husband came into office, and it was called the Sociedad de Beneficia, which was made up a bunch of a bunch of uptight social ladies. <laughs> okay. Right? Uptight society ladies. Mm -hmm. And usually they asked the first lady of the country to head the organization. And it provided charity for women and orphans and poor people and just kind of did all these really good things within the country. But it's headed by a bunch of snobby, wealthy ladies Mm -hmm. who consider themselves the society of Argentina. Well, they don't like Ava. (laughs) She's got, you know, she doesn't have a good background. She's got a lack of education. She was an actress right which is very low class yeah yeah back then that was terrible it was like one of the worst things you could be but they just didn't think she'd be a good influence for everyone in society basically (laughs) and they just snubbed their nose at her Mm -hmm. and so she basically said screw you guys i'm creating my own charity it's gonna be called the ava perone foundation and she convinces her hubby to give the money from this, excuse me, she convinces her hubby to give her the money from this mean society ladies charity. Oh, she's like, take the money from them and give it to my charity. That's one way to do it. He does. So they lose all their funding after that because they snubbed her, which is interesting. They Um, really didn't like her then. Yeah. And then there are also people again that are saying that her, her organization didn't keep records and it was basically funneling money out of the country. Wow. Okay. An excuse to funnel money out of the country hmm. again. Um, and, but others kind of counter this claim and say that, that Ava Perón's charity quickly gained support um, and was worth over 3 billion pesos or $200 million. Um, it employed 14,000 workers and donated a staggering amount of shoes, pots, pans, sewing machines, scholarships. It built hospitals, homes, charitable institutions, and whole communities. And for the first time in the history of Argentina, there was no inequality in healthcare because this organization that she created just was so on the streets helping people wow. and distributing money and giving people things that they needed so that they wouldn't be so poor and, and, um, and in a bad situation. And she set aside a huge portion of her day to meet with the poor. She listened to them. She sympathized with them. She kissed them and allowed them to kiss her. And this was absolutely unheard of in that mm-hmm. period of time, particularly with society ladies who were so snobby, they didn't want anyone touching them, let alone kissing them. But she quickly takes on the status of a saint. They're just like, it becomes sort of a religious thing where 
this woman and the things that she's doing is just becoming more and more amazing to the mm-hmm. people that, that hear these things. And again, Perone's got this sort of a media train going along as well. And I'm sure they're highlighting her events and what she's doing yeah. for the people as well and using it to the best advantage. It reminds me of it, like Princess Diana. Um, a little bit, except I think this was a little bit more bonkers with how everything goes yeah. at one point. They say at one point she was working 20 to 22 hours per day with her charity. That's and too much. I'm sure this I'm sure this might be a little bit related yeah. again because her husband was kind of controlling this media narrative about everything. Yeah. So I don't necessarily know how much of that, this I trust as absolute fact and truth, mm-hmm. but... They say that she became pretty fanatical about her organization and ending poverty. That was like her big thing, like her platform as the first lady. Mm -hmm. She's also credited with getting Argentinian women the right to vote. And this happened September 1947. They didn't have the right to vote until then. Wow. Right after Eva created the female Peronist party, which was the first female political party of a large size in Argentina. And this only helped her popularity soar even more because she encouraged women to vote and hold political office. So she was really using her role as the first lady to encourage women Mm -hmm. to do big things. And that was, I I don't think that was something that had happened until then. You've always kind of had these women that were the first lady of the country that were very conservative and quiet Mm -hmm. and kind of supported their husband and sat in the background. You didn't have people that were out there running charitable organizations and encouraging women to hold political office. That just wasn't a thing back then, particularly in that country in South America. So by 1951, her husband chose her as a candidate for vice president. So there's an election coming up and he says, I want her to be my vice presidential candidate. And as you can imagine in the 1950s, this is not a very popular move. There are a lot of conservative, kind of chauvinistic people that are terrified that Juan would die and she would be president. So then Juan and Ava have this huge rally, and this is considered the largest public display ever for a female political figure at that point in time. And during this big rally where everyone's gathered to kind of celebrate this woman, she declines the vice president role. She says, not going to do it. Okay. uh, she defers to her husband and says that she only wants to support him. Okay. And h- historians call this the renunciation, where Ava is kind of portrayed as this selfless woman in the face of her strong, capable right. husband. And she's doing her part to support the country by supporting her husband kind of a thing. Okay. Which kind of makes me cringe. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that, that was what it was like back then. Um, so then by May 1952, Juan gives her the title of spiritual leader of the nation on her 33rd birthday. Just like and Jesus. And he gets... Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, her hubby is then reelected as president of Argentina later that year. Um, but all was not well with Eva. So, I mean, it seemed like it was too good to be true. Yeah. Like there's a lot going on and she's gaining support and popularity and all of a sudden something has to happen. Um, by 1952, she was actually very sick. In fact, by that point, she was unable to stand without support. Um, The people kind of supporting her and her hubby created a plaster and wire frame to hold her up under her coat. Oh, wow. And she was taking massive doses of pain medications just to make it through the day. So 
It's interesting, but they say that most of this started in 1950 when she fainted in public and she was taken into surgery and they kind of had to try to figure out what was going on with her. The news claimed that she had an an appendectomy, Mm -hmm. but it was actually advanced stage cervical cancer. Whoa. Yeah, which back then was a death sentence. Um, After that, she has periodic episodes of fainting, extreme weakness, pain, severe vaginal bleeding, and a whole host of other symptoms that you get with late-stage cancer. And she gets a first diagnosis in 1951, but her hubby held it from her. He didn't let her know what her diagnosis was. And that was kind of in the midst of that thing where he elects her for vice president and she's going through all that. So, so she, she did something not know seriously. that like, she was dying when she turned down the vice president nomination? I don't know that she did. Wow. There's kind of some speculation in both directions that he kind of held that from her on purpose. And maybe that had, maybe she did know and they determined together that it wouldn't be a good thing for yeah. her because of the cancer and, and et cetera, et cetera. So there's a whole host of different forces playing out in the background for this. But um, she then goes and she then undergoes like this really, really serious thing. She gets a hysterectomy in an attempt to rid her body of the cancer. Mm-hmm. And back then that was kind of a bonkers sort of a mm-hmm. thing. It was very, very new and it was a very crazy surgery back then and she has it done by an american specialist um in an attempt to rid her body of this cancer and i don't think that they really knew that much about cancer and the treatment of it back then but it obviously didn't work Mm -hmm. and the cancer came back in a major way now people that saw her body afterwards and kind of um did examinations on her say that she also was given a prefrontal lobotomy at that time. What? To re- to relieve pain, agitation, and anxiety in the last months of her illness. Jesus Christ. Right? Isn't that so crazy? Ultimately, though, like I said, the hysterectomy did not work, and the cancer ravaged her body. She... I think was willing to try anything that she could to survive. And she became the first Argentinian to have chemotherapy. Wow. And it was like super new at the time. And I don't think that they really understood it that well, but by June, 1952, she was so weak. She barely weighed 79 pounds and she ended up dying June 26th, 1952. Wow. So, when that happens, I think she died in the evening at like 8 o'clock or 8.30 or something like that. All the radio broadcasts are interrupted to announce her death. And the government suspends all political activities. All the flags are put down to half mass for 10 days. Businesses are halted. Restaurants are shut down. And the country is in mourning officially. Mm. And crowds start to gather in front of the presidential residence, and the streets were congested for blocks and blocks on either direction. And as the crowds were gathering, they're moving because they want to be near Ava's body. And eight people were crushed to death, and thousands were treated at local hospitals for injuries as they're rushing to be near her body. And huge piles of flowers lined the streets, and within 24 hours after her death, all the flower shops in like a 100-mile radius are all out of flowers. And it Ava is like is Princess given, Diana. Right? Ava was given a state's funeral, and this is usually reserved for the heads of state, but she was also provided a massive memorial, and there was a huge public outpouring for Ava that had not been seen before. And it was pretty shocking, I think, for some people, because some people thought 
that it was genuine, genuine, while other people thought that it was this was all played up by Juan Perón to gain sympathy and support. Hmm. Like, it was all part of his political game. And Ava worked tirelessly to ensure before she died that illegitimate kids were given the same rights as natural-born mm-hmm. children. I think she had it created so that the designation was given to them as natural children right. rather than illegitimate children so that she could end some of the stigma of being you know, a mm-hmm. bastard child. And then Juan has Ava's body embalmed. And I don't think there was any indication that that was something that she wanted prior to her death, but he had her embalmed so she would appear as if she was asleep, which seems super creepy to me. And a memorial was constructed and planned in her honor, in her honor, displaying her embalmed body, kind of like Lennon. Yeah. Which seems super creepy as well. But in 1955, Perón was overthrown by a military coup and he fled the country. And he didn't have time to take care of Ava's body. So it disappeared for 16 years. What? Just disappeared. And the new dictatorship that took over banned all talk of Ava and the Perón political machine. So it was like, yeah, no more Peronism. Like, we're not talking about that. It, it's gone. Like, like, they erased it. By 1971, Ava's body was found buried in Milan, Italy. Wait. So somebody had taken her body out of Argentina and buried her in a tomb or a crypt or something in Milan, Do we know how she got to Italy? No one knows. What? They just say that they found her body in Milan, Italy. And it had suffered damage to the face and to the feet. And there were also allegations during this time that there was abuse of the corpse and sort of a necrophilia element to it. Yeah, like her body had been abused by officers or military people or something of that nature. I think there's a lot of speculation about what happened during that time, how they found her. I don't think there's really any clear story. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, Perón gets her body back and brings it to Spain and he's remarried by then. And they keep Ava's body in their dining room near the table in Spain. I'm sorry. Her embalmed body is in their dining room next to the table. So by 1973, Perón goes back to Argentina and is reelected president for a third time. His new wife becomes the vice president, like he had wanted Ava to do, and then eventually she becomes the first female president in the Western Hemisphere after he leaves office. And Ava is later buried in the Duarte family cemetery in Buenos Aires, and there's a very sophisticated security system in place now to protect the corpse. This is an interesting kind of a a story, and like... (laughs) All parts of it to me are fascinating. And I think that there's sort of this kind of story that plays out that Perón was not quite the wonderful person that people made him out to be. There's elements of fascism and dictatorship and tight control of the country. And it's just, it's really interesting to I me. Have, and I have questions. Sure. <laughs> okay. I don't know that I'll have answers, but you can go ahead and ask. <laughs> okay. So, so a lot of things happened. And we just kind of jumped from A to um we skipped a lot of things so okay so he Juan Perón is overthrown by the military and he flees does he flee to Italy no 
he, he flees to like Spain. Spain. Okay. Yeah. And Ava's body goes missing for 16 years and is then found Correct. in Italy. They found in Italy buried under some other woman's name, Maggie something or another. Did Ma- this Maggie in, person in have crypt. any link to Argentina? No. No. What in and the I world? I think that somebody who was a sympathizer with her, because she was a very, very popular woman with the people and the crowds, I think somebody close to her snuck the body out and hid it. How do you sneak a body across the hey. ocean? <laughs> I don't know, but they took her body out. They, they snuck her out of the country. So, like, okay, 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 okay. They <laughs> took her to Italy. Blowing my mind. Okay. She was embalmed in, like, the royal palace or whatever up until Juan Perón is overthrown. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I got to get out of here. He's, I don't have time to take my wife's body. He's building this huge memorial for her. He's building a huge memorial for her, right? And before it can be completed, this dictatorship overthrows okay. him. And he doesn't have time to take care of the body yeah. and to secure it. He just takes off. Right. Okay. And somebody takes Ava's body and rescues her. By taking her to, to Italy, Italy and hiding her in somebody else's tomb. That's baffling. Because they were afraid that somebody was going to damage her or harm her or do something bad to her body, so they snuck her out of the country. I mean, I get, I get that. Like, I understand why they would want to, like, protect her honor, you know, if you will. But, like, that's baffling. Yeah, she died in her, like, mid-30s. It just seems so sad because I feel like she had a lot to give. And I honestly feel like if this woman had been born today, she would be the leader of the country. Yeah. And it was such BS that she was born when she was because she wasn't able to do that. And, you know, the cancer, yeah. like this is his first wife died of cancer too. Like it just, all of it seems very odd to me. So when does he go back to Argentina? The seventies. And then he's reelected again. He's got to be hella old by that. Point. Yeah. He was 48 when he met Ava. Do you know when he died? And then his wife became the president of Argentina, the first female president. Juan Perón. Um, let's see here. Hang on. Let me, I'll tell you when he, when he died. I think he died in the 70s. He's quite a man. He's not a very attractive man either. Um, he died 1974. Okay. Age 78. And then his, and he, his... And he died in Buenos Aires. And his third wife becomes then the president. Yeah. Which is interesting. And she was... I think he was just looking for somebody who could fulfill his like an political heir. aspirations. And when Ava couldn't do it, he moved on, found another one that could. Wow. Which is interesting. Have you seen so, Evita? Uh-uh. I haven't either. Now I'm kind of curious. Oh, I want to see it. I mean, I really think that there was a lot of this political kind of story creating mm-hmm. by Perón because... He controlled this narrative about his wife and about the country mm-hmm. very, very carefully and about himself even, which is smart in a lot of ways. Um, and he chose the right people to, to back him. Yeah, well, until you were overthrown by build. the military coup. Yeah, well, that was kind of bonkers back then too. But I, I do think that Ava did a lot for women yeah. and I think that she did a lot for illegitimate children and her charity was massive. So, like, there's a reason why she's so popular, and she's continued to be popular in, in that country and beyond. Like, there's been quite a few res- resurgences where books and movies and different things like that have picked up on her life and touted her as this amazing person. And I do think in many ways that she was yeah. an amazing person. I think some of it was probably inflated a little bit by, you know, by her husband. But I do think that she did quite a bit for that country and for women and mm-hmm. for poor people. Okay, so this thing about the corruption and the money, did, did, did we ever find out if that was true? 
there's no proof. Okay. There's no concrete so like, proof that any of that happened. That was like it's a convenient story, but just because she went to Switzerland. Yeah. Okay. It's speculation. But then, as you said, Argentina is one of the places that Nazis yeah. went after World when War he would have been president. Well. So, um, you know, if they're giving him money to let him to let them come into the country, he's got to find a way to hide that, mm-hmm. right? So it is entirely possible that money was funneled out of the country, but I don't think that there's any concrete evidence of that. Like, there's no, like, proof that Ava was, like, no. a willing participant in that part of it or right. anything like that. Right. Fascinating. Yeah. Very, very interesting period in history, and... I, like I said, I think she was just born before her time. I have, like... My mind is blown that her body ended up in Italy. I didn't know any of that. I knew that she had been a political leader of sorts yeah. in Argentina, but I really, beyond that, I didn't know yeah. much at all. Wow. But she sounds like an amazing woman, and I think that she did a lot for her country, and kudos to her. I kind of hope my body goes missing, and 16 years later, she ends up in, Mil- in Milan. It's just sad she had to die of cervical cancer. Yeah, that's sounds awful. like it was an horrific awful painful and then she had a hysterectomy and a lobotomy and like so there's i don't think that there's any there's nothing that says she absolutely had one but it says let me read you what it said that kind of led me to believe that that was a thing so in 2011 a yale neurosurgeon dr daniel nejinshan studied eva's skull x-rays and photographic evidence and said that Perone may have been given a prefrontal lobotomy in the last months of her life hmm. to relieve the pain, agitation, and anxiety she suffered in the final months of her illness. So there's speculation that's on, that's that... based on x-ray. Yeah. Hmm. But I think that that sort of thing wasn't uncommon back then either. Like, lobotomies were given quite frequently. Oh, yeah, yeah, no. No, it was definitely common... Um, I mean, Rosemary Kennedy was given a lobotomy around that time. But, um, yeah. It was like if a woman was over-emotional or if a woman was scared or depressed, or ang- they would give her a lobotomy. Yes. I'm just trying to think of, like, I'm just trying to think of, like, how you could look at an x-ray. I mean, it would have had to have been, like, had they gone in through, like, the lacrimal, like, the tear duct or maybe up through the nasal passage or something like that, and he would have seen some bone damage from this from the x-ray to make yeah. that judgment call. But... But then again, her body had been damaged right. uh, on transfer to Italy. Right. And when the, she returned, it, her skull and her face had sustained damage. So was he looking at something that was related to the damage sustained in the transportation of her body? Or was this something related to a lobotomy? So, and would that really be discernible between those two things? I, I don't know definitively, but I'm just kind of like trying to like talk this through in my head right now. Like... The, the locations that they would have done a prefrontal, prefrontal lobotomy when they had to do, like, the like the chisel type deal uh-huh. would have been, like, in the... Wait, in what, the can you explain th- just to the... To the what, it, what, it's, what it is? Yeah, so a lobotomy listeners. is literally removing brain matter. So, like, a frontal prefrontal lobotomy would be remo- removing the prefrontal cortex of the brain, and that's typically um, responsible for decision-making, for impulse control, for anger things like that. I, the pain thing is interesting because I don't think it has anything to do with pain unless it's ha- like has to do with a response to pain. But, but anyway, so, so basically they would insert something up her nose and or take through out her a tear ducts. portion of her t- 
take out a little portion of yeah, her brain. Yeah, they just, like, insert a chisel and just, like, scramble it. Yeah, that's bizarre. Yeah, I, that, in, that in itself is such a wild procedure. It's still done. And we might, ha- we might have to see an episode or do an episode on that just because I find it so fascinating. They still do it but... in cases of very, very, very severe depression. But, um... But anyway, neither here nor there. But, like, the, the places that, that they would have done it would have been her tear ductor up through her nose. And those aren't places that, like, the bones are obviously very thin because that's the reason that they do it at those locations. But right. it, it would be interesting, like. So they had to have examined her brain and seen that that portion of it was impacted, right? Not in 2011. In she wouldn't have had any brain tissue. If she was embalmed. No. They remove your organs. No? Uh-uh. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But, yeah, I don't know. But, um. Like, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, basically what I'm saying is, like, you wouldn't fall or, like, her skull wouldn't fall or get knocked somewhere that would cause damage to those areas. Yeah. So, it's, that's probably why he said that, but that's interesting. Right. Hmm. So, there's a lot of different, like, she's got, she's had quite a few biographies done yeah. of her life. And I think that there are a lot of people that make a lot of speculations and talk about a lot of things within the novel that aren't within these different biographies that aren't necessarily proven sure. with concrete evidence behind them. So I talk about them, but only in a sense of these are things that people were saying, not necessarily that people are able to prove. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, it is. It's an interesting story. She was a fascinating woman yeah. and... I think she's one of those women that, you know, when you think about what women political leaders would you have liked to have met? If you had the opportunity to go back and meet some famous female political figures, who would it be? Eleanor Roosevelt. She would be, she would be on the top. She would absolutely be at the top there. For me. Mm -hmm. Um, Just because I find her so fascinating and I think she was probably a very magnetic person. Yeah. Yeah. To have gotten all that she did and to achieve what she did, she had to have been persuasive and charming and intelligent and worldly. And she had to have had a good deal of street smarts because mm-hmm. she didn't grow up with money. So, like, I think she would have been one of those people that I would love to have met. And everything that she was able to accomplish growing up in poverty and without a formal education, too. I mean, as it's just an illegitimate child, yeah. no less. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, she's at the top Hmm. and she probably was amazing at parties too. (laughs) You gotta think she was was probably super interesting and super fun to be around. So that's my contribution to women's history. Month. That's awesome. (laughs) Anything else you want to add before we wrap it up? No, I mean, I'm going to read about her on Wikipedia tonight, but other than that, no, go check it out. She's a fascinating lady. There's a lot of material out there about her. Yeah. In any case, we're going to go ahead and wrap the episode up for the day. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our little podcast. Let us know that you're out there and that you enjoy what we're doing. And if not, send us an email and tell us what we can do to make it better because we're always up for constructive criticism. Um, Just be nice because we're human too. (laughs) We have feelers too. (laughs) Our feelers get hurt. Um, Darcy is social media. Yeah, we are at the BFD podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. So uh, we post pictures and show notes and all that good stuff there. Yeah. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe. Keep it real. And always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys.